the text for our sermon this morning, Hebrews chapter 6, and we're in verses 19 and 20. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This time I'd like to call our kids down front for the children's sermon. Do you know, Aiden does, I questioned him about this yesterday, do you know what an anchor is? An anchor is a very big, heavy piece of iron with a long line of metal rope called cable. And ships use them. They usually have, they have hooks on both sides so that they can catch hold at the bottom of the sea. And ships use these, they drop their anchors so that they can stay in place. And once the anchor reaches the bottom of the lake or the sea, the winds and waves will not move the ship from its place. In the verses that we just read, the Bible calls our hope in Jesus an anchor. Now I want you to picture something with me in your mind. A long time ago, when God's people worshipped him, they had to go to a special building called the temple. And inside that temple, there was a very, very special room that no one was allowed to go into except for once a year. And on that one special day, the priest, who was the minister that offered the sacrifices for the sins of God's people, he would enter into that special room with blood from the sacrifice. And this was a picture for the people to understand what Jesus would do when he came. Jesus offered his blood to God for the sins of his people. So that special room was like a picture of God's presence in heaven. And if anyone entered that room, they would die instantly. Even if the priest entered the room, unless he came on the right day with blood from the sacrifice, he too would die. God's holiness is so great that sinners would die in its presence. The only thing that shielded him from the power of God's holiness was the blood of the sacrifice. And it's still the same today. The thing that shields us from the power of God's holiness is the blood of Jesus' sacrifice. Now that special room, I keep doing this because there's a room here to my right. That special room had a very thick curtain instead of a door. That curtain was about four inches thick. Very thick, very heavy, and very tall. And the verses that we just read tell us that our trust in Jesus is like an anchor. It keeps us from being moved away from our faith in Him. But that anchor isn't on the bottom of the lake or the bottom of the sea. That anchor is inside that special room. It's a very beautiful way of saying that Jesus' death for our sins and Jesus' work as our priest is our anchor. It's the greatness of Jesus that holds us in place so that the problems of life and the temptations of the world do not blow us away from Him like winds might blow a ship off its path. This world as a whole does not love God. The world that you live in loves to sin, and it hates anyone and everyone who tries to live for God and tries to share God's Word. And for a Christian, this can be very much like a storm is for a ship. It pushes and pulls and tries to make the ship get off course. It's very easy 
to live for Jesus when everyone around you thinks that this is a good thing. But when people around you do not love God and they make fun of you, what will happen to you then? Will, we be, will you be embarrassed to tell them that you love God? Or will you tell them you don't care if they laugh and make fun of you and call you names? This is a lesson that all Christians need to learn and better to learn it while you're young. Everything around you, from TV to movies to music to books, all of it is like strong, a strong windy storm trying to blow you away from God. Nothing in this world is friendly to your life as a Christian. And if you aren't anchored to God by true faith in Jesus, you will be blown off course. The Christian life is like sailing in a ship to heaven. The ocean doesn't want you to get there, and your own steering wheel is broken and is always trying to get you to go off course. And the only thing that will keep you where you should be is the anchor of faith and trust in Jesus. And we're going to pray, and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believeth. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our text this morning is the official transition back into the discussion about Jesus as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So you'll remember back in chapter 5, Paul writes, Christ called by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And then later he says, Therefore, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. And this we will do if God permits. Well, thankfully, God permits. And we are now going to go on about Christ as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I want to make a quick observation, though, about God's dealings with his people as exhibited in that series of texts that we just cited. God always cares for his people, and he always puts their benefit and needs above all other considerations. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says that Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. Paul's doctrine in Hebrews 5, verse 11, which he says is hard to explain, is an example of what Peter was referring to. Now, the point I want to make is this. There are things that God's people need to know. And the fact that unlearned and unstable people may wrest these truths to their own destruction doesn't stop God from revealing these truths because His church needs to know them. We need to know, both intellectually and experientially, that Jesus is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The church needs to know this. And God places the welfare of His church above the potential harm that this information or knowledge may do to unbelievers. If you've been around Christian circles for very long, you will no doubt have noticed that there is no shortage of 
the wise guy know-it-alls with a million and one gotcha questions that they think disprove or debunk well-established, historically accepted, reformed doctrine. And the Bible has some very harsh things to say about people like this. Peter says that they're like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. Jude says they were of old ordained to this condemnation. Jude even says that they speak evil of what they don't understand and what they do understand like brute beasts. They corrupt themselves in these things. Augustine, the great 5th century church theologian, said that we know that the reprobate will play games with the truth to their own destruction. But we don't let that fact stop us from preaching the truth to the elect. The children's food is for the children. And they shouldn't be deprived of food because some mangy animal under the table might choke on a bone. Our outline this morning is based on the three things that Paul uses as descriptions of our relationship to Christ. Number one, the anchor. Number two, the veil. And number three, the hope. The anchor. Now there are a few things that will immediately come to mind when we hear the word anchor. And along with these things, there are a number of other things presupposed as well. So let's start with the most obvious thing. What is an anchor? An anchor is a a weight used to hold ships in place. Heavy iron weight, usually with hooks attached to a line of cable long enough to reach the seafloor or the lake floor. Once the ship drops anchor, it is held in place. Winds and currents will not cause it to move from its location. Now this is a very fitting metaphor for the Christian life. We are pilgrims traveling through this world. We have a clear path marked out for us by the Word of God and the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. But since our own sinful nature acts like a fifth column within our hearts, it's very easy to get off course. I mean, first of all, there's the current of this world which runs in direct opposition to the will of God. Now, of course, this isn't always obvious, but it should be. We live in a society that retains only the faintest remnants or or vestiges of a once robust Christian heritage. But the world's preoccupation with frivolous baubles has clouded that heritage and indeed eroded its foundations. Over a hundred years of movies and nearly 80 years of TV have conditioned us to view life as entertainment instead of what it really is, war. The early 2nd century Roman poet, Juvenal, called it bread and circuses. You've probably heard that expression. Rome fell because she was addicted to entertainment. The fun and recreation could not be interrupted by real life, things like war, citizens being virtually replaced with foreign combatants, unsustainable government spending, usurious debt, and civil unrest. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. We live in in an... essentially atheistic culture. Everything that we are exposed to is godless, in the most devious of ways at that. TV, movies, books, newspapers, magazines, radio news, podcasts, vlogs, school curricula, all present us with a world that has no God in it. It's not as if all these forms of entertainment, education, and, and, and media openly deny the existence of God, although some do. It's that they ignore his very existence. It's right and just for us to be angry with the rabid atheists like Richard Dawkins, men who blaspheme the God of heaven. But truth be told, his atheism is small potatoes 
compared to the atheism of the New York Times bestsellers, the number one movies at the box office, chart-topping pop singles, and the nightly news. That's a more devious form of atheism because they simply presuppose God's non-existence and then act, behave accordingly. I mean, if you were watching your favorite crime show and the detectives called for a prayer meeting to ask God to help them solve the case, you'd have to pick your jaw up off the floor. If your kids' school books mentioned God's name in a good light, you'd be euphoric. You see, you're accustomed to a world with no God in it, but you're a Christian, the first quality of which is believing in God. So you need an anchor to hold you in place against the godless, immoral, evil current of the world. How has immorality crept into society and into the mainline denominations? I can tell you it was not by way of rigorous argument. It was by small degrees and almost exclusively by way of entertainment. I noted this last week, how how TV and movies have made sodomy look normal, attractive, and even superior to heterosexuality. If professing Christians had reacted in righteous anger and shut off the lousy box, they wouldn't have been exposed to the worship of sex and perversion. And consequently, churches today would not be overrun with sodomite pastors who promote all manner of wickedness. You need an anchor to give you stability against the world's currents of evil. And let me say something that should not escape our notice. Anchors presuppose storms dangerous currents, and contrary winds. Jesus tells his disciples, that is us, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Paul says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Scripture tells us that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, our lives in rural America may lull us into a false sense of security. Life is granted, or simpler, granted. Uh, But if you imagine that unbelievers will take your side when push comes to shove and the choices between submitting to the righteousness of God or pursuing the lusts of the flesh, you've got another thing coming. Cain will always hate Abel. Arch enemies Pilate and Herod will always join forces to persecute Christ and his church. Never forget that. The most dangerous war is the one you're unaware of and therefore unprepared for. Just because we aren't being forced to meet in secret locations to worship doesn't mean that our civil government loves us and supports us. Just because we aren't being arrested for our faith doesn't mean the world accepts us and supports what we're doing. We need an anchor to weather the storms of persecution, the storms of prosperity, the storms of public opinion, and the storms of bad press. Hope in Jesus is the anchor. What does our text say? This, anchor, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And it's not just some generic trust in Jesus either. It's a very specific hope in Jesus as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Anything that comes in the place of Christ, the Bible calls antichrist. The Greek prefix anti does not mean against in the sense of direct opposition. It means against in the sense of pretending to be a substitute or replacement for. When a man puts himself forth as Christ's representative on earth, 
or when you put forth your good works as an addendum to Christ's righteousness. Both are antichrist in the biblical sense of that term. And the most present and immediate antichrist that the recipients of Hebrews had to contend with was a continuing Levitical priesthood, intent on carrying on with things as normal as if nothing had ever happened, as if Jesus had never come. The true anchor, the true hope is that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. As our sacrifice and priest, He performs everything related to our salvation. As the essence of the covenant and as its guarantor, the totality of our salvation is in His hands. In the words of Top Lady's famous hymn, nothing in my hands I bring. If you're adding anything to the work of Christ for your salvation, then you have no sure anchor. Your confidence in your anchor can only be as strong as the anchor itself. If the anchor is you, how much confidence can you possibly have? If the anchor is your free will and faithfulness to God, unless you're blind to your own heart, you have to know that your anchor won't hold. When in the normal course of daily life, when there are no extraordinary forces tempting and trying you, and you fall into sin in thought, word, and deed, what makes you think that you'll stand strong against real pressure, real opposition, and real persecution? Jeremiah 12.5 says, If you've run with the footmen and they've wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? When circumstances are favorable to a simple, unhindered Christian life, and yet you fail to read the Bible regularly, fail to attend church regularly, fail to partake of the sacraments, fail to strive after holiness, don't kid yourself that you'll do any better when the tide of public opinion shifts and Christians are openly hated. And that was the situation of the original recipients of this epistle. Not only was there state-sponsored opposition to the church by the Roman Empire, there was open hostility against Christians by the unbelieving Jews who had doubled down on their rejection of Christ. We come now to our second point, the veil. Now there are three veils mentioned in Scripture, which I believe all represent the same thing. They are one in essence. The first is the veil of the tabernacle, the second is the veil of the temple, and the third is the veil over Moses' face. Now it's self-evident that the, the veil of the tabernacle and the veil of the temple are one and the same thing, because the tabernacle was just a portable version of the temple that Israel had while she was wandering in the wilderness. Once Israel was situated in the promised land and it subdued her enemies, God commissioned the building of the temple. The form and structure of the temple followed the same basic form of the tabernacle, only it was a permanent structure. It had all the same rooms and furniture, it had the same altars for sacrifice and incense, and it had the same veil. The veil was a four-inch thick curtain that separated a room called the Holy of Holies from the rest of the facility. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in this room, and the high priest entered this room only once a year. He went in on the Day of Atonement with blood from the sacrifice. And there were strict protocols that the priest had to follow, otherwise he would die. He would literally be killed by the glory of God's holy presence. That veil served as a barrier to shield the rest of the tabernacle or temple from this glory of God. 
The third veil was the one over Moses' face. And I'm going to argue that they represent, it represented in miniature the veil of the tabernacle and temple because that veil represented Christ's human nature. Now Moses served as a mediator for the people. And in this capacity, he was a type of Christ. A type is a foreshadowing. God used the life and work of Moses to depict to us many things about the person and work of Christ. The Old Testament is replete with such types. Paul calls the Old Testament institutions, quote, a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. What makes Christ unique is that he is both very God and very man. And in this facet of his existence, the veil of the temple is highly meaningful. Just as the veil shielded the priests from lethal exposure to the glory of God, Jesus' human nature veiled his Godhead. And later in Hebrews, Paul's going to say that exact thing. Moses, as a type of Christ, wore a veil over his face to shield the Israelites from lethal exposure to the glory of God that reflected from his face. Moses spent so much time in the tabernacle basking, as it were, in the glory of God, that it rubbed off. And until this effect wore off, Moses had to put a veil over his face. The veil served the same purpose and taught the same gospel message as the veil of the tabernacle. A man cannot see God face to face and live. God's presence must be veiled or else we die. Jesus' human nature veiled his unapproachable glory. Moses' veil served the same purpose. And Paul makes a very startling point about this veil in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to read for you 2 Corinthians 3, verses 13 through 17. Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For unto this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When Jesus died, the barrier between God and man, represented by this veil, was removed. And that was demonstrated when the veil, this curtain four inches thick, was rent in two from the top to the bottom the very moment that Jesus died. But for those who reject Jesus, this veil remains. Access to the saving presence of God is prohibited to anyone who dares approach God apart from Christ's mediating priesthood. That explains why two people of equal intelligence can read the Bible, yet one understands it and the other doesn't. One has had the veil removed by faith in Christ, the other has not. And Paul speaks of this specifically in relation to the unbelieving Jews. Since they had rejected Christ as the promised Messiah, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, the clear teaching of Scripture was hidden from their eyes. Seeing they see not, hearing they hear not. Jesus said that's why he taught in parables. John 12 records this. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. Israel shows us the indispensable nature of grace. You can give a man the right religion, complete with all its doctrines, rituals, and ceremonies. You can instill in him the importance of carefully guarding that faith. But if that man rejects the grace of God, he will turn the good gift of God into a weapon to his own destruction. Paul says that the very ones to whom God sent the prophets and his own son, quote, killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. And he describes them as contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Am I getting off topic? No. I'm trying to show you that unless this veil is removed by faith in Christ, there is no limit to the evil that one can commit and defend. If we do not come to God through the veil rent by Jesus' sacrifice, then that veil remains over our eyes, forever hindering us from seeing the truth. By His very own flesh, Christ has opened the way into the Holy of Holies so that all believers have access to God. Just like the priests of old, if we dare enter God's holy presence apart from the sacrifice of Christ, His glory will slay us. We will die in our sins. The believer has a steadfast anchor of faith which holds within the Holy of Holies because the veil of Christ's body has opened the way for us. And that brings us to our third point, the hope. I'm going to read the end of our text again. Behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, first things first. When our text speaks of hope, it isn't referring to the the act of will called hope. It's referring to the object of our hope. Now, the Bible often uses this form of expression. For instance, God is called the fear of Isaac. Not because Isaac's sense of fear was God, but because God was the object of Isaac's fear of the Lord. Likewise, Scripture calls Jesus' return our blessed hope. Our eternal, incorruptible, heavenly inheritance is called the living hope unto which we are born again. In short, the object of our hope is the salvation of our souls by the finished work of Christ and the enjoyment of that finished work in God's eternal heaven. Remember that I said earlier that our confidence is only as good as our anchor. This text teaches us that our assurance, our trust, our confidence is in God's immutable purpose. We saw that last week. And for that reason, we have no fear. Our hope is in God's immutable purpose. And God's immutable purpose is the salvation of His people by the priesthood of Christ. Our catechism teaches that God so accounts to me the righteousness of Christ that I stand before God as if I had fulfilled, fully accomplished, all the obedience that Christ has accomplished for me. Now our text calls Jesus our forerunner. Christ did for me what no Levitical priest could ever do. No Levitical priest could just march into the Holy of Holies on his own merit and open the way for others. Anyone who dared walk in without the blood of Christ was struck dead on the spot. To enter God's presence without the atoning blood of Christ is to die in one's sins. 
Since Christ entered the heavenly holy of holies with a perfect sacrifice, and since Christ is a sinless priest, and since Christ is the covenant representative of all His people, He is our forerunner into the very presence of God's glory. You take the greatest saint who has ever lived and strip him of Christ's righteousness and send him into the bliss of heaven, and the pure glory of God would kill him dead. A man can only enter the presence behind the veil if Christ is indeed his forerunner. I'm here to tell you that you cannot enter the presence of God on your own dime. You have no sacrifice to bring. Your best works are impure, polluted, filthy rags. Unless you submit to the righteousness of God and take refuge in the perfect righteousness of Christ, you have no atonement for your sins. It's like entering a nuclear fallout zone without proper equipment. You will be instantly slain. All men stand in one of two relations to the death of Christ. They are either beneficiaries of it or perpetrators of it. Christ's blood either covers your sins or you have his blood on your hands. There is no third option. Christ's uh, priesthood is perfect. Rejecting the priesthood of Christ is a deadly sin. Whether you put into its place a bunch of your own works or whether you insist on an abrogated Levitical priesthood, it doesn't matter. The end result is the same. I want to conclude with a beautiful paragraph written by William Googe. Let us therefore look unto Jesus. The Israelites in the wilderness so looked under the pillar of cloud that went before them that when the cloud was taken up in the morning, they journeyed. Whether it was by day or by night that the cloud was taken up, they journeyed. Whether it were two days or a month or a year that the cloud tarried upon the tabernacle, they abode in their tents and journeyed not. The Lord Jesus, our forerunner, was the truth and substance of that pillar. As then in the wilderness he went before his church in that shadow and type, so much more brightly and visibly in the days of his flesh when he fulfilled all righteousness and for righteousness' sake endured the cross and despised its shame. The Lord Jesus is set before us as the object of our faith and pattern for our imitation. We must therefore look unto him with the two eyes of our soul, understanding and faith and follow him with both the feet of our soul, obedience and patience. The church undertakes thus much in this prayer and promise, draw me and we will run after thee. The prayer gives evidence of her understanding and faith, the promise of her obedience. We must look with the foresaid eyes to Jesus that we may receive life, vigor, strength, and all needful ability. For of ourselves, we are not sufficient to think anything as of ourselves. We must follow Christ that we may be both guided in the right way and encouraged to go on therein. Let us pray.